quite a book, Joshua. It corresponds to uh, our book of Ephesians as well as some of the other Pauline epistles in its content and its teaching value. A very wonderful book that we're in the process of studying. I don't know that I would call this preaching uh, at all, but more like a Bible study, trying to get a look topic by topic as the way the content of this very vital Old Testament book breaks down. Now, in chapters 1 and 2, the book of Joshua describes to us a time of preparation, a time of preparation for God to do what Joshua characterized to the people as wonderful works, a time of preparation so that the people would be ready to move when God eliminated the immovable object and when God overcame the obstacle that man could never overcome. Chapter 3 describes a time of realization when God really did intervene in a miraculous miraculous way that was unmistakable that He had done it. A time of realization of what God had said that He would do. Now, in chapters 4 and 5, it would seem to the human mind and you know, being human, we, all of us, are less than objective about humanity. And it would seem to me that what happens in chapters 4 and 5 might be a little unnecessary. But then as I read on through the Old Testament, I find out that not only was this period of time described necessary, it was even not enough to deal with the frailty of their humanity and to keep them from turning away from God. Now, in the first two chapters, Joshua promoted personal uh, dedication, commitment, purity, cleansing, and like this. And now, in these two chapters, here is a time of firmly establishing in the minds of the people the Lordship of Jehovah. The Lordship of Jehovah. You see, uh, here in chapter 4 is a time when the people were taught that in all experiences of life, in every circumstance, wherever they went, whatever the condition they were in, they were to remember the Lord. Remember who He was. Remember what He had done. And on the basis of the past, what He would do in the present and into the future if they would let him do it. And then in chapter 5, the people learn to honor the Lord, to honor him, to prefer him, to obey him, if only for the sake of obedience, in order that his way might be upheld. And then in chapter 6, through the rest of the book, is described the process of conquest that had been waited for for so long since Israel had left Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and wandered for 40 years in the wilderness of sin. There in that little triangle of land between Africa and the Fertile Crescent, they had wandered in oblivion, in a place of barrenness, sustained, yes, fulfilled, no. And now, finally, beginning in chapter 6, we will see in the next few weeks how the conquest comes about as God had promised and predicted that it would. And so in chapter 4 tonight, I want us to observe 
how they were taught to remember the Lord. And just to break this chapter down and make some observation about its comments. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, here is the matter of the Lord's reminder. It very simply says that when they were passed over Jordan, then the Lord spoke to Joshua. And he said, get 12 men, go into the midst of the Jordan and pick up 12 big rocks and have them take them across the river and leave them in the place where you lodge tonight. The Lord's reminder, I would observe just a couple of things here. First of all, this, if you will read this reminder, this little paragraph in the light of the book of Judges, in the light of the reign of Saul, the bad king who who reigned between the period of the judges and the man after God's own heart, David, then you will see that God knew all of the time how very easy it is, in fact, how very hard it is for His people not to forget what He has done and what He can do once they have passed through a time of crisis. Has that not been our experience? You know, day in and day out, very few Christians are really ruined by big things. And when I mean ruined, I don't mean disgraced or dishonored or, or branded as a criminal or, or a complete failure, but just ruined as to their effectiveness and their relationship to the Lord. Very few are ruined by big things. It's little things that ruin us. You know how it is when life falls in around your shoulders and, and, and a great crisis comes. God is right there. You find in Him everything that you need. But then remember also when the crisis is passed and, and things have eased up a little bit, how very easy it is to forget Him, forget what He's done, forget that Jehovah is the Lord, forget a lot of things that are very important. You see, God knew all of the time how very hard it would be for His people not to forget Him and so he reminded them to remember what he had done. And then notice in verses 4 to 7, here is what I would characterize as the leader's response to the Lord's reminder. Joshua called 12 men and he said to them, Go through Jordan again and pick up every one of you a stone and take it to the place where we'll lodge tonight and, and lay them down. And this shall be a sign among you in all times to come. When people say to you, what does this pile of rocks mean? You will say, this means that God cut off the waters of Jordan and brought His people from the wilderness to the place of His promise. On dry ground. Here is the leader's response. Have you not thought that on in the midst of a very special day, you see, this was uh, Joshua's full confirmation before the people. In Joshua chapter 1, God has spoken to Joshua and he has confirmed him. He has told him, you're my man, I want you to lead the people. 
He has told the people. The people have responded. Uh, God has done much to confirm it. But now he is truly confirmed when God, at the word of Joshua, in the forefront leading the people, does the impossible. Now, I don't know, but right about then, I would think that everybody concerned would just really be riding high and floating and having a good time. And it seems to me that it is a very strange request to go down into the riverbed and pick up rocks. Well, the word in the Hebrew is, makes us understand that it's a big rock, probably all that one man could carry without help. I mean, they were too big to throw. They were too small to build anything out of. What for? But now Joshua had already learned one thing. Now we're going to find out over here in chapter 7 that he forgot it, but he, he got reminded. He'd learned that God was in charge. And his response, very simply, is like somebody who is called on the phone by the boss and given an order, who puts the phone down and tells his subordinates to carry out the boss's order. That's all he did. He didn't say, now Lord, on a sublime day like this, that seems ridiculous. He didn't question the Lord. He didn't really even ask for an explanation. He said, all right, you got it, Lord. Things are going so well, I'm really kind of afraid not to do what you say. His response was that of instant obedience. Now, I just want to insert this. The, the burden of this chapter is these two monuments of stones that were set up, one in the river and one at the place called Gilgal, to remind the people of what God had done for them. They had just come out of Egypt 40 years earlier. And you've all seen in movies or magazines or books the glory of ancient Egypt. The pharaohs, when they raised a monument to their gods, would raise a stone obelisk, a solid piece of stone, maybe 150 feet high, and raise it to the sky with all kinds of ornate and beautiful carving and artwork all over it. When they had a place to commemorate the uh, worship of their god, the temples of Egypt were the most fabulous temples in the ancient world. And how beautiful it is when you come to understand that what God is really doing here is telling Israel there is nothing that you could ever do that could glorify me. The false gods, the gods of mythology, the gods that didn't even exist had ornate and beautiful monuments and temples. And Israel was commanded by the Lord to pile rocks up. To memorialize him. And yet there is a simple and eloquent beauty. For anyone would know that Jordan, who at this time was at flood season, but at all times of the year flowed swiftly within her banks. Anyone who would look at this monument would see that these were very obviously stones that had been shaped by the water of a river. And yet where did they come from? How were they raised? Where, how were they taken from the midst of the water? And you know, I think this anticipates the fact that in years to come, when Israel would look backwards to Egypt and to the east to Assyria, and as Babylonia would become a part of her experience, there would be mockers who would come to the monument.
one at Gilgal and they'd say, what does this pile of rocks mean? And Joshua said, you're to tell them this means, brother, that God parted the waters, did the impossible, and his people went forward on dry ground. The leader's response to the Lord's reminder was that of instant obedience. How beautiful it is for us if we will realize the way God, by this object lesson, taught Israel that there is nothing man-made or man-contrived or man-structured or carried out that can really glorify God. I would imagine that there were Israelites, no doubt, that thought they should memorialize the Lord. There were artisans of great skill, as you would see if you read further, uh, or you read just behind this in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy about the building of the tabernacle and all of the beautiful artwork. And Lord said, hey, you know, I, I don't want what you can do. He said, build me a monument that consists of the evidence of what I can do. Pick those rocks up out of the river. Pile them up. And when folks want to know what they mean, you tell them. And then in verse 8, the people's response. It is a response to God who has spoken in the way that he speaks. The people, very simply, did as Joshua commanded and took up twelve stones from the midst of the river and carried them to the place where they were staying that night and laid them down there. Now the thing I want you to notice here is you recall how God has commanded Joshua and previously commanded his people to do exactly what he said. He said, deviate not from my word to the right, which is the strong hand, the good hand, nor to the left, which is the weak hand or the evil hand in the Hebrew metaphor that is used there. They were under orders simply to obey God, not deciding that they knew better than God by taking away from His commands, not deciding in their zeal to do more than God asked, but merely to obey them. And notice that now that attitude of obedience has broadened from one man to the many. These twelve men, without questioning, without an, a real explanation, went to the river, each man carrying a large stone, took it to the place where they were staying, and just laid them down. And if you'll look back up in verse 3, that's exactly what God told them to do. He didn't say, build me a monument. Not yet. He didn't say what to do. He just said, get the rocks and lay them down somewhere. And their obedience was exact obedience. Doing according to the word of the Lord, neither more nor less. Then in verse 9, here is the first of the two memorials, which are really the remembrance monuments, the, the subject matter, the purpose of this chapter. <coughs> Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priest who bore the ark stood, and they are there unto this day. The word Jordan means judgment is spread out. I don't know why the river was ever given that name. Its origin is lost in antiquity, and I guess we'll never know this side of glory. But in the Old Testament, as in the New, 
Jordan is used as a symbol of judgment, as a symbol of death. And if you would go to Ephesians and go to the book of Hebrews, you would find reflected there the symbolism here. Now, this was a real event involving real people, but it corresponds to what God has done for us. Jordan represents death. The wilderness represents lostness in sin. And every believer has left the place of sin, gone to and beyond the place of death by identification with Jesus in salvation and has been resurrected, as the New Testament formula for baptism says, to live a new life in Christ. What did the monument in Jordan mean? Well, it's like a gravestone. It's like a gravestone. You see, Jordan represents death. And if you want to see a picture of the cross, you have to look no further than here. For Jordan, the place of death, and in the midst of Jordan dwelt the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol of God's presence. And the people were taken down into, through, and out of the experience of death, protected by the presence of the Lord. David could look backwards to this experience in the history of his people and he could say, Yea, though I pass through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. This monument is like a gravestone. At the writing of this book, the monument was still there. And it was as though Israel could come to the river And they could look yonder and say there was a time when we were aimless and hopeless and wandering in a place of desolation. But we have died to that life and have become inheritors of new life through obedience to God. This monument symbolizes death like a gravestone. Dead to her past, dead to the wilderness passed through death to the place of new life. And Israel was commanded by way of this monument to always remember that their very existence was by the grace of God. You know, I, I recall in studying First Peter how it struck me in those early verses of the book where Peter, beginning his letter with grace, makes it very obvious that everything that we are and everything that we have and everything that we accomplish is the gift of God's grace. Now, I recall the thought passing through my mind that that has set me a little freer than I was before. That thought being, if everything that I am and everything that I have and everything that I shall ever do is the gift of God, what right have I to be proud of it? And Israel is told, remember the marker in the river and your very existence and everything that you have and everything that you are is the gift of God's love. So they were told to remember that. Not that they were to honor God with some of their time, 
Not that they were to obey the law of Moses in giving some of their possessions to God. Not that they were to be good by keeping some of the rules, but to maintain an awareness that it all belongs to God. And that they themselves were ransomed and purchased and delivered from death in order to be his people. The psalmist, with that awareness, you know, David was not a perfect man. David uh, would have a hard time getting a church job in any church in America. He had too bad a history. You know, never mind the fact that God forgives, people can't. Uh, David just had too bad a history. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was a man of war. Really pretty belligerent when you get right down to it. David is called a man after God's own heart, not because he was any better than anybody else, but just because David had a heart sensitive to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And David never forgot who God was. David could write, We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the land and all of the people who dwell therein. We are to remember that everything we are from our very existence to everything else is the gift of God's love. And then notice in verses 10 to 13, Here is the completeness of provision. The the emphasis in these verses is it merely records what happened is very simply this. You know, when God parted the waters of Jordan, they didn't have to do a rush job in order to be sure not to get drowned. They didn't have to hurry and people get trampled in the rush. You know, sometimes when God moves in, we're still so fearful in our own lives. And perhaps you can relate to it in your life or the life of your family. We're still so fearful after God moves in and bears His arm, we we hurry up and rush like God's going to change His mind. But it is simply eloquent and beautiful to realize that the whole time that all of the people and all of their possessions that all of the warriors from the two and a half tribes that were to stay on the other side of the Jordan with their families, that everything they had and all that was theirs passed through unashamed and unafraid while the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, dwelt silently and effectively in the midst of death. You know, we need to remember, folks, that when God does something, God does it right. You know, it's amazing to me that that we react as we do in our humanity. We read things like the rebellion in the wilderness, and I don't really understand how those folks could refuse to walk down the road at Kadesh to the through the green valley to the, to the new land when they had seen God drown the armies of Egypt, but they did it. And then I remember that we have the benefit of God's Word. We have the whole thing. We can take the long look and see all that God has revealed to man and still we tremble and quake and, and fear and refuse so often to be bold in advancing at His command. 
But notice the completeness of his provision. When he does something, he does it right. And then in verses 14 to 18, here is another expression of the Lord's method. Now, we've seen it in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. We've seen it really throughout the whole uh, letter, so the whole book so far. And again in chapter 3, verses 7 to 8, it is simply a matter-of-fact statement of what happened, and it is totally consistent with the way that God always does His work among His people. On that day, the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him or respected him is a better translation. And as they had respected Moses all the days of his life, and the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony that they come up from Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come up out of Jordan. And it came to pass, when the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord were come up out of the midst of Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted unto the dry land, that the waters of Jordan returned unto their place and flowed over all his banks as they did before. Here is merely a simple reflection of consistency. God is always consistent. Situations change. Cultural values change. Uh, methods of doing things change. But, and God expects that. You know, if we were going to be a New Testament church and press that to its logical conclusion, we could not have a building. We could not have electricity. We couldn't have musical instruments. We couldn't drive cars. We couldn't do anything. And, of course, certain groups of people have zeroed in on certain aspects of, of, of biblical life and have refused to be modern. Now, there's no sense in that, and there's no scriptural justification for it. But, beloved, one thing you may know is that when God lays down a principle, the principle never changes. God didn't lay down where we were to meet or what kind of uh, furnishings we were to have or the fact that we don't use the lute and the harp anymore but the piano and the organ. God didn't lay that down, but there are a multitude of things in God's Word that God laid down in simple language and they don't ever change. Jesus said, the heavens and the earth shall pass away before one dot of the I or cross of the T passes from the Bible. I tell you, you want a verse of Scripture that will set you free. John 10, 35, the last half of that verse says very simply, the Lord Jesus said it, the Scripture cannot be broken. Now, that's whether we believe it or not. You remember 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we believe not, yet he abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. And Jesus said, just plain out, the Scripture cannot be broken. And God knows that the enemy of God tries it all the time. Far be it from us, the people of God, to try to break it. When God states a principle... That principle is eternal and it applies to whatever the situation is. Beyond the principles which are applicable to situations, God understands that, that uh, mode of ways of dress and, and methods of transportation and lifestyles and, and all kinds of things like that change. God recognizes that. But you can hardly categorize the foundation principles of God's dealings with his, print, his people in that category. The Lord's method. 
consistent, simple, and always the same. And then notice in verses 19 to 24, here is the second memorial. Now, the first memorial, you know, I guess the first few times I read Joshua, I I just was reading, and I, I didn't really get into it. I didn't really understand. I didn't try, I suppose. The first monument was set in Jordan. It was like a gravestone. The second monument was piled up. These stones were raised as a monument in a place called Gilgal. Now, we did a study one night on Gilgal, just zeroing in on it, on what it meant. Gilgal, the glory side of Jordan. Uh, Gilgal, the name means the place where reproach has been rolled away. Gilgal is a place symbolically which could rest between Calvary and the open tomb. For at Calvary, reproach was rolled away from us because of the blood of Jesus. And at the open tomb, our future resurrection was secured as he came triumphant from the grave. The first monument in Jordan was like a gravestone. The second monument at Gilgal was a symbol of life, a symbol of resurrection, a symbol of the newness of life that belonged to the people of God. Gilgal, by the way, and it is not only a symbol, it's a historical fact, but it is a fit symbol for Christians to consider. Gilgal became a base of operation. It was to Gilgal, through the years of conquest, that the armies of Israel returned from their battles. It was to Gilgal that uh, Joshua set up his headquarters and there administered the conquest of the land. Gilgal became a base of operations. Gilgal became a place of remembrance for until the setting up of other places to worship and honor God. Gilgal was a place through the period of Joshua and the judges where the people of God would come in remembrance to offer their sacrifices and to beseech the forgiveness in the presence of the Lord in their midst. And like Gilgal, Calvary must be the base of our operations. As we remember that everything that we do must point the world toward Calvary or it's a failure. As we remember that nothing we do that is unrelated to the ministry of evangelism has any business in the church. And as we remember that it was at Calvary that by His death we were given life and that the seed of death has become the source of life to all who belong to God. In verse 24 you will find the purpose of these two monuments. It's twofold. That all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty. That you might fear the Lord your God forever. Why were they to raise simple monuments of river stones to God? That the world might know that God is powerful 
and that his people might remember who he is. We too need to be reminded as they did who God is, what God has done, and because of that, what he can do today and what he shall do tomorrow. We too need a place to look to that we might never forget that Jehovah is the Lord. That we might never forget that when God commands, He also, with the command which is His Word, energizes the very forces of the universe so that His people can carry through His command. Remembering the Lord, we need to remember our death and passage to new life. And that all we are, have, and can be are the gift of His love. What would you say and comment on our question concerning the book of Joshua, particularly chapter 4? Yes, sir. Well, Brother Corbin, if you'll... It's really some of the details left out of this. But now, this group of stones in verses 19 to 24 are the only stones that were picked up. Uh, In 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, the children of Israel, these men from each tribe, were commanded to pick up these stones and carry them across. Now, verse 9 says, Joshua went down into the river and he set up 12 stones in the river. Those stones were never really carried anywhere. Joshua with his own hands. And by the way, folks, this, is, this book is so full of beautiful symbolism. You see, Joshua is the Hebrew form of the Greek name Jesus. Now, at Calvary, the place of death, Jesus was all alone. Nobody was there with him. He did it all by himself. And in the midst of Jordan, Joshua, Jehovah saves, Jesus, the leader of the people, if he'd been a Greek, they'd have called him Jesus, was all alone in the midst of the river and all by himself. He set up that monument in the midst of death to the grace of God just full of of Christian symbolism. But see, only one group of stones was carried out of the riverbed. Those are the ones they set up at Gilgal. Joshua went down into the river where the Ark of the Covenant was, and he set up these stones. Well, it's easy to miss. I think I probably read this thing five or six times before I realized there were two monuments. It ceases on this day, I believe. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 12 says the manna ceased on the day after they crossed. The day when they crossed the river, the manna ceased. 
Right. You know, the pillar of cloud, if, if we properly understand that, what that cloud really was was like a quilt. Uh, from what I know about that part of the world, during much of the year, the sun will bake your brains. And if you want to see just how tender and compassionate the Lord is, this pillar of fire was, or cloud rather, was like a, a quilt. It was just a big cloud cover. And if you didn't want to get your ba brains baked, you stayed under it. And so that's how they knew where God wanted them. And then in the nighttime, the pillar of the, the cloud would evaporate or go away so they could see the sky. And the Lord would raise a pillar of fire, natural, just God-commanded fire that would uh, protect them from wild animals and stuff like that. But the pillar of fire, the, uh, the cloud covering, and the manna all ceased when they crossed the river. What else? Mike? It, it can be interpreted that way. But, you know, recall, you know, just bear in mind that uh, there is typical, you know, types, there are symbols in the Old Testament, but these are real events. And so you could easily put that interpretation on it. But this is, you know, Jordan is taken in the prophets and in the New Testament as a symbol of death, death, burial, and resurrection. This right here, you can certainly see it that way. The wilderness is carnality. The Jordan is the death of self where you make Jesus Lord. And Canaan is the spirit-filled life. In fact, I've used it that way. But that, you know, one really doesn't preclude the other when you talk about the symbolic value. There's more than one valid way of applying it. You know, for instance, you know, the, uh, see, you could press this to a point where you'd say, well, no, that can't be what it means because you can't, you know, you don't believe and I don't believe that it's God's will that a Christian converted from the world pass into the wilderness. So, see, you, 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 you can't carry any analogy too far because otherwise you make Lord, you make God the author of our carnality. And, you, you know, you can't do that. See, it was God's will that the wilderness not be a, an experience, really. That it just be a week-long trip from the world to the land of promise. But, you know, it does illustrate in that way that, that we don't always cooperate with the Lord. Because after salvation, there are, you know, a lot of us that didn't know anything about what it really meant to walk with the Lord and live the Spirit-filled life. But, you know, if you see the differences here, you know, on the other side of Jordan was the promised land. On the other side of the Red Sea was the wilderness. You know, so there are similarities, but there are also differences. What else? 
All right, then you'll notice the length.